typically at camp you hear a lot of invitations. You hear a lot of, I'll wait till it's quiet. You hear a lot of heartfelt pleas to say, why don't you come? Why not now? Softly and tenderly. Tonight's message is going to be a little bit different. I might be trying to talk you out of making a decision. Because you see, there's a lot of people who make decisions at camp, and uh, they start the council, and then they kind of get back to their friends, to their school, to the groove, and they lose sight of that, and it doesn't last. And so, tonight I want you to think a little bit beyond just how you're feeling about the, sp the moment, and be willing to consider making a commitment that goes deep, and that's going to be able to stand a test. A couple scriptures. For those who brought Bibles, I assume you did bring Bibles. This is a Bible camp. Since I'm not projecting and making this all entertaining, I'm going to make you work and open your Bible and read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, reading from verse 14. It goes like this. You got it? Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway, that means right away, without a moment of hesitation, straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Jebedee, and Je John, his brother, who were also in the ship mending their nets. And straightway, once again, immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went after him. Now, there was a couple other people who actually wanted to follow Jesus, and Jesus turned them away. Did you ever read that story? It's found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, the very end there, starting from verse 57. Luke, chapter 9, verse 57. <clears throat> And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. And there's no straight way here. He said, O oh, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go and bid them farewell, say goodbye, to those which are 
at home at my house. And Jesus said unto them, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, we might get the impression from these invitations that, that Jesus is, just can't wait for us to, to trade in all the pain and heartache that we have for all the good he has for us. And that is true. He can't wait. He, he hurts with you. But Jesus is not interested in being a spare tire. He's not interested in, being, in, in, in you adding Jesus to your life. He's not interested in you just kind of adding to your plans of, of college and work and relationships and all these things and you know we're going to have church attendance in there and we'll come to camp and have a blast and um, you know we'll have good Christian friends in our Facebook circle. Right? He's interested in a little bit more than that. He wants you to leave it all to follow him. And for those that Jesus met here who weren't quite ready, I mean, they had a good intention. They wanted to follow Jesus. They said one of them even took the initiative. Uh, the first one says, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. I mean, that sounds like total commitment to me. He said, whatever you want, wherever you go, I'm going to be there. Almost like Ruth. But Jesus tells him something. He says, you know, even though the animals have a home, I don't. If you're going to follow me, that might mean being homeless. It might mean not having a roof over your head. It might mean that you don't have the financial security that you might have expected. And another one took the initiative says, no, he said to another one, follow me, and he says, oh, God, I want to follow you. Just, uh, you know, family's important to me. Let me bury my father. Now, I don't know if that means that his father was really old and he just wanted to spend some time with him before he died or whether his father had already died and, and, and the funeral was scheduled and he wasn't, and Jesus was that urgent that when he said straightway right now, he couldn't even go and bury his father, which you can imagine how you would feel. But Jesus really is very straight here. He says, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And the last one says, I will follow, but I just want you to say goodbye, that's all. Just give me, let me turn around, say goodbye, and then I'm going to follow you. And Jesus says this, that no man putting his hand to the plow and looking back is worthy of the kingdom. He's saying he was disqualified from following him because it wasn't right away. He needed to say goodbye first. And that wasn't good enough for Jesus. Jesus wanted total, instant obedience. There's times... It seems that Jesus wasn't interested in getting this big crowd, this big popular movement to follow him. I mean, there's times here, like in Luke 14, a few more chapters, there's these big crowds with him. 
And he turns around and he says to the crowds, if you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to even, uh, your family's got to be way second to me. He uses strong language. He says, you've got to be willing to hate your father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and your own life. You can't be my disciple. In, in a parallel passage, he says, if you love your father or mother or, or your own life more than me, you're not worthy. In this passage, he makes it so strong, it says, in comparison to the love you have for me, they got to be almost on the level of hate versus love. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, a cross isn't this nice pretty thing you put on around your neck, and if you don't carry this pretty jewelry around your neck, you can't be my disciple. That's not what he's saying, right? He's saying that unless you're willing to suffer like I did, where I gave up my life to save you. If you're not willing to give your life and suffer, you can't follow me. Now, to us, you know, we've heard lots of sermons about that, and, and it sounds like, you know, sure, you know, our forefathers, a generation ago, for them it meant uh, either prison or, you know, they, they would, they would, their life was... Uh, they had to make some major sacrifices. And many of you might know some forefathers who, who actually had to suffer. But for us, like, really, who do you know that has really suffered because they wanted to follow Jesus? Who do you know that really has had to give up something significant? Now, I ask this because I want to address this generation and this time. Because I think this is really important. I want you to, to see the stage of the world and history in which you're at because this generation is going to be critical to whether there will be Christianity flourishing a few years from now. You see, if you, you think historically, this happened, Jesus called these Peter, these, these unlearned fishermen, back in Galilee, and they spread the gospel even though they didn't have the skills. They said, who are these uneducated fishermen? But thousands were converted. Things spread. Paul spread it to the Mediterranean basin. It went north to the barbarians who attacked the Roman Empire. In fact, Thomas even took it all the way to India. But things spread kind of westward more than anything else. And then from Europe, we know that... uh, the British Empire kind of controlled uh, a huge, the, the sun never set, but from the British Empire, it came across the pond to here to North America. And Christianity grew and was even stronger here in North America than it was in Europe. Now, do you know what Christianity is like in Europe right now? Do you know that churches are closing all the time? You know that they're turning into mosques and museums? Because there's this dying in the wake of Christianity that people started taking it for granted. People started getting comfortable. They were second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth generation Christian, and then they started to, to you know, argue. In fact, <clears throat> there's a story that when the Turks were, were almost taking over Europe, and in, in the, they were at the gates of Vienna, and inside the church was having a very important meeting. 
and all the church leaders were gathered together, you know, as, as the invaders nearly had the city uh, walls taken down. And, and the subject of this very important meeting was, if a fly falls into the holy water, does the fly become holy or does the water become impure? So you can see how Christianity lost the picture of what's important here and they got really hung up on these details. And in our Christianity too, we can start forgetting about the fact that there are billions of people on this planet and you know maybe the most generous estimates that one-third of them know Jesus Christ. And if we believe that what these words say are true, that means two-thirds of them are dying and going to hell. We don't like to say those words, but that's what the Bible says, and Jesus didn't mince the words. He talked about hell. He talked about the place where the worm doesn't die, and he made it clear there's no other way to heaven but me. I am the way. No man comes to the Father but by me. He made those exclusive claims. So we can't have Jesus as this nice, comfortable, flannel graph Jesus that makes everybody love and, and, and he says, neither do I condemn thee. And, and he's really, you know, with the, the liberal movement here. Jesus makes some radical take-it-or-leave-it statements. So two-thirds of the world are dying and going to hell at the rate, you know, of one every so many seconds. And are we going to be worried about these little church issues or are we going to be worried about how many friends we have on the Facebook? Or, or what's happening? Or who's going to win the game? Or what's happening on the World Cup? Or all these things that just like crowd our lives. And there's so much media. Every week there's new movies coming out. Every week there's new songs coming out. Every week there's more stuff streaming on us. And we've got to stay on top of all this stuff. Otherwise we don't know what to talk about with our friends. And... If we don't get this big picture, we laugh at these, these bishops in Vienna who are arguing about whether the water makes the fly holy, but what, what's the rest of the world think when they look at us? And they see how we're just shallow, absorbed in this North American culture that's all about consumption, about me, 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 and about entertaining myself, and we lose track of the fact that billions of people are dying without Christ. Now, because I think the wave is passing us by. If you look at this westward wave, now in Asia, you've got a house church movement that is on fire. You've got youth your age in, in a place where the, the, the government does not tolerate uh, any church outside of its three-self church, if you're a house church, these people are put in prison for multiple decades. Uh, they're, you know, poked with cattle prods in all kinds of places and tortured and, until, you know, they will give in. And there's youth your age that are saying, you know, I'm going to train to go and spread the gospel in the most difficult parts of this country. And my family knows that. My family knows I may not come back. My family knows because they've spent their decades in prison that, that, you know, this is, but I'm willing. They tell me that Jesus is worth it. Do you believe that Jesus is worth it? Do you believe that Jesus is worth you leaving your comfort and doing hard things? Doing things that may cost you 
Do you really believe that? Now there was <clears throat> there was a group called the Cambridge Seven. Before this wave passed, well, let me just give you that picture. We see how Europe is dying. America is at a decision point now whether we are going to collapse because of our selfishness or you know, whether there's going to be a new wave, and that's why you're here tonight, to make a decision whether you're going to be part of that. But in Asia, that wave is rising because these people love the Lord, are willing, like the Bible says in, in Revelations, when, when the accuser is in heaven, that's Satan, and he's accusing the brethren day and night, it says that the saints overcame because they love not their lives to the death. That's what Jesus says. He who... who um, if you love your life in this world, you will lose it. If you don't love your life, you will keep it into life eternal. You have to be willing to hate, he said, your own life also to be my disciple. He means it. So then there's people in the rest of the world who live it. There is a world outside of North America, by the way. And, and in Asia and in Sudan and in these Muslim countries where you know what it's like if you're a Muslim and you convert, you know the persecution, the honor killings that go on, but these people are passionate and they're willing to continue to communicate. The, the, the school teacher in, in China who's, who's, who's willing to meet with her interested students and tell them the gospel even though that might mean her, her job. The, the, the Muslim uh, believer who's, who's continuing to reach in his city even though he knows a mob might be coming down and burning down his house. In, in Africa, where they can, the pastor continues to open the, the church doors, even though the, the Muslim mobs come down and raise and, and burn. And, uh, and, and there's so many orphans because the parents have given their life for Christ. I mean, this stuff, if you get Voice of the Martyrs, if you get uh, Open Doors Ministries, there is every week new information about this stuff really happening. And these people loved God so much it's not stopping them. And, and their neighbors are amazed and they make advances because they don't love their lives to death. As the Muslims say, you know, what's up with this? You guys are still loving me. You guys are still sharing with me even though we've done these horrible things to you. They don't understand. And the mission of this Chinese house church movement is to take the gospel back to Jerusalem. That's not some end times philosophy here, it's that they know that the, the part of the world that's still unreached is, is between the 10 and 40 lines of latitude. And across that 1040 window, they're prepared to go into the, not only the, the inhospitable mountainous regions that are barren, but into the, the Muslim strongholds, into these Hindu strongholds, which there are hundreds of Christians dying in India because of violent Hindu um, extremists as well, and they're willing to, to, to do this, to take the gospel through the whole world. Are we willing to be a part of that? So are, is that going to be the wave? Are we going to be in the wake of that? Are we going to be like Europe? Are we going to just roll over and play dead? Because it's right now I got what I want, and I'm comfortable. So, when Europe, in, eight, uh, in this 1880s now, 
when Europe was facing that, there was this, all this prosperity, prosperity gained through colonialism to the, the backs of slaves. And there's these wealthy people in England. Now we think, oh boy, these guys are so you know, evil because they've made wealth on the back of slaves. But you know, a lot of our money it is, we're buying things cheap because there are sweatshops in Brazil and everywhere else that, that we also are extremely rich, that we also are incredibly rich, that one billion people in this planet make a dollar a day and live on, have to live on that. Two billion make two dollars a day, so that's three billion out of the six in the planet. And that the food we throw away could feed the rest of the world. And there's 24,000 children dying a day of hunger, from preventable disease. So the point is that there's parallels between England, late 1800s, and us today. And in England, the, uh, there really wasn't a lot of um, belief in, 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 in the, the call to uh, be missionaries, to take the gospel to the world. There was, uh, it was kind of a lot like you could relate. There was, these people had a lot of money. And the big thing was sports. Now, it wasn't football. It, it was this sport called cricket. That's what it was in England. But uh, it was big. And everybody knew the players. And the big university where the intellectuals were was called Cambridge. And nobody that really had privileges like that ever really threw it away and went and gave their lives for the gospel. And in, But God had a plan. He had... Uh, there was a man in, in, in China, and he's in this count, uh, part of the country, this province where there's like nine million people and there's six missionaries. And he sees the need, and he starts praying that God would send people to come. And he prays, and he never sees it, but the day he dies is the day the first of the Cambridge Seven came. The Cambridge Seven was people that God were preparing, people that had a, a nominal Christian background. They were, a lot of them were Christian, but, you know, they gave their life to the Lord, and then they kind of just kind of eased into what was happening around them. So the most well-known of them, his name was C.T. Studd, Charles Thomas Studd. And uh, his, his older brother, his dad made tons of money in, uh, in India, and so he had it made. He had, like, inheritance of like $23 billion in today's terms. And, um, and, but he, his plan was to become uh, really good at, at, um, at, at the favorite sport, at cricket. And he wasn't nat naturally good. His older brother was like a natural athlete, and he did really well. But he had to work at it, and he spent hours in front of the mirror and, and perfected his his throw, and until he had it just right. And uh, as his passion for cricket grew, his kind of love for the Lord kind of dwindled. Even though he had made a decision, it kind of was something real back burner for him. Until um, till God really confronted him. And I won't tell you the whole story here. You can go look it up uh, for yourselves on the internet. Uh, but God got a hold of him, and 
he started to see the need. And when he finally, it was him and, and six other friends of his at this, this privileged university, when they finally were broken and that they saw that Jesus wasn't someone, I mean, some of these even people wanted to be ministers. But minister was something that was like, you know, a comfortable job. And they really hadn't, weren't sold out for God. They weren't really on fire for him. They weren't really willing to go anywhere God wanted them to. But when God got a hold of them and they did that, and uh, in the, in the, they started a tour in the country saying goodbye, and when the rest of the students saw, wow, here are, are people who, who have money. I mean, C.T. Studd, he actually became very successful. He was like the Michael Jordan. Uh, the, like Everybody knew about him. He was a household name because he was the best at the most famous uh, uh, sport there was. And when they said, wow, he's willing to leave it all. And these other guys who had the money, who had the brains, had promising careers in, 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 in professional respected uh, circles, when these guys are willing to, to go, then there was, came a whole wave of, of other youth that were inspired by their example who also were willing to leave it all behind and uh, go to China and go to Africa and to India. And there was a whole new impetus to the Protestant mission movement. The reason, and, and this C.T. Studd, he took his $23 billion and he gave it all away. Actually, he kept $3 million because he wanted something for his bride when he married her, but when she found out that he still had that money, she said, no, we got to give it away before the wedding day. So he gave away all of that $23 billion and gave his life to the Lord and served him both in China and Africa and India. And it inspired another whole generation. It gave a whole fresh momentum to Christianity. I say this because you here tonight, you could go for this kind of uh, shallow North American lifestyle where you do a lot of things that feel good, but you really don't feel fulfilled inside. You know there's something missing. You know there's something more meaningful to do with your life. You know you were created for more. You know it. Or you could choose to really abandon your life into God's hands. Where it's not going to matter what your friends say. Where it's not going to matter all the, the frivolous stuff that's going on in your life is going to look completely different. And where people are going to matter. Souls are going to matter. And where Jesus is going to matter. And what Jesus thinks is going to matter. And when all, there can become a fresh fire in this place from these souls right here, that you can become the new Cambridge Seven, inspire a new generation to say, we don't, we're, we're, we're fed up with a shallow consumer mentality. We want to do something meaningful with our lives. We want to do something that makes an impact on the world. And God has given you that opportunity. He's built you with that desire in your heart. Each of you may have a different gift but God's not interested in, in just having people who speak or people who do music. He's interested in people who are willing to give God their everything. As he said here, willing to count the cost, if we read the rest of Luke 14 here. 
that are willing to say, God, I'm going to give you my whole self. I'm going to make you not just Savior, but Lord. Over not just my Sundays, but all seven days of the week. Over not just the things that my church friends see, but what my school friends and what my what everyone sees, I'm going to be one person. I'm going to be God's woman. I'm going to be God's man. <clears throat> so you're going to hear the invitation this week. I'm not making a very heartstringy, soft music, pulling your heartstrings tonight, but you're going to hear it. You might hear it this evening. You might hear it throughout the week. I want you to, to think about your own life. I want you to think about the planet you're living on. I want you to think about what's going on. It reminds me, do you all know the story about Elisha in 2 Kings 6? There's this, uh, this northern uh, empire, Syria, and they're, 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 he's, every time he goes to attack the king, the prophet Elisha knows the plans ahead of time, and he says, uh, oh, you know, Syria's coming here, and, and uh, the, Israel, the king of Israel is able to get away. And so the king of, of Syria gets really frustrated, says, there's got to be a spy here. Somebody seems to, to be leaking the plans, and what's going on here? And they say, well, there's this prophet, Elisha. You know, whatever you say in your bedchamber, he knows what's going on already. And... Um, so he says, okay, well, forget the king. Let's go for Elisha. And so they find he's in this town of Dotham, and they surround it. And uh, Elisha's servant wakes up, and the whole place is surrounded by the Syrian army. He thought, oh, we've, we've lost. It's hopeless. And, uh, and then Elisha said, has this short little prayer. and says, God, open my servant's eyes so he can see the whole picture. And he prays, and the servant opens his eyes, and surrounding this massive army of people and horses and chariots is a flaming army of, of, of angels that totally outnumber, and, and, uh, and God was totally in control. And so we can become overwhelmed by, hey, things are looking grim here. You know, secularism is coming in and is dominating you know, the, we're not allowed to, Christianity is losing more and more ground in the public square and the, in the court system. Uh, Muslims are taking over. And there's going to be some kind of backlash and, and all, all of religion is going to be hit as people react to fundamental Muslims. You know, things look grim. But if we look beyond that and we say, you know, that's the human picture. The spiritual picture is that God has way more power. And God is able and he wants to show his glory through weak people so that the glory goes to him through, through me, who's not very good at this, and through you, who may feel you're not qualified for what God's calling you to do, and you don't think you're going to be able to stand up to your friends, and you don't think you're going to be able to stand out and do the things God's calling you to do. But God, if you step out and you let God work, God's going to do incredible things in your life, in your generation, in your time, that's going to impact the world. That's what God's calling you to. I think that's uh, all we have time for tonight. I want you to think about that. 
as we head up.